Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. This episode of What's Your Name is brought to you by the Girls Can Crate, a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that girls can do and be anything. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. Hey, what if I said I'm going to tell you about an intellectual who composed cutting-edge music, Mm. who treated medical patients with a holistic approach. She included music therapy, and she inspired art. I would probably ask you whether they lived in Portland or Boulder. (laughs) Then, what if I told you this person was a nun living in a convent 900 years ago? Wow. I am Hildegard. I know the cost of keeping silent, and I know the cost of speaking out. Hear my story. Perhaps you know me as Hildegard of Bingen, but it was several miles from Bingen where I was born, in the Nahr Valley in Germany, in the year of our Lord, 1098. Do you know the Rhineland? Do any of you know it? Yes? It is the most beautiful place, is it not? Rich and green, moist and fruitful. The rolling hills stretch as far as the eye can see, crowned here and there with tall crags and watchtowers that seem to reach to the sky. And on the southern slopes, the carefully tended vineyards ripple like waves on the skirts of the hills. They call it now, I believe, the fatherland. (laughs) To me, it will always be mother. Well, so you may have already guessed that today we're going to talk about Hildegard of Bingen. Katie Nelson, and I'm Olivia Mickle, and this is What's Her Name? Fascinating Women You've Never Heard Of. That wonderful voice you heard, the voice of Hildegard, was the Reverend Professor June Boyce Tillman, Mm. professor of music at Winchester University, and that was a recording of a performance she gave at St. Paul's Cathedral in London as part of the St. Paul's Forum, and they were good enough to share that recording with us. But to chat about Hildegard, I sat down with Professor Alice Chapman. Hello, my name is Professor Alice Chapman. I'm an associate professor of medieval history at Grand Valley State University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hildegard of Bingen was a 12th century nun. She was a writer, and she wrote works on music. She also wrote medical texts. She composed a beautiful Ordo Virtutum, which is a mystery play. 
and was just an, a terrific visionary, philosopher, composer, and um, all-around brilliant figure of the 12th century. Her life played out in the world of Catholic monasteries in the Middle Ages. She was the 10th of 10 children, and she was born to uh, a kind of, not an upper nobility, but a minor noble family in Germany. And she was given by her parents to the church to train, really, as a, as a Benedictine sister at a very young age. So it's possible that, that Hildegard was presented to the community at Disembottenburg in Germany at age eight. And they were cloistered nuns. What does that mean? Um, it literally means you're walled up. Like, they, the women lived on the back of a monastery where the where the monks lived Mm. and the women were in this enclosure literally walled in they never saw the outside world whoa there was like a slot in the wall where they could pass things through to the outside world but they were just completely closed off from the whole world oh yeah i've seen i've seen a there's a monastery like that in uh Arcos de la Frontera in Spain, where they oh. still are like six six nuns who live in there, and you can buy Magdalena. You can buy these muffins from them, but you put your money on a thing, and it spins around. Oh, really? And they take the money and give you the muffins, and you never see them. Wow. Yeah, it's cool. Well, so there were lots of different types of monks and nuns. Some of them were uh, what we call anchorites, and they would live a solitary life away from the world. And this is the case, we think, with the young Hildegard. She was trained by an older sister called Juta, and Juta was associated with or lived uh, right right there in the monastery grounds of a larger male monastery in a town called uh, Disembottenburg. And this male monastery didn't have a female convent. It was a male monastery. But they did have Juta of Sponheim. She was from a very wealthy, very well-connected family. And so, and this is very typical of the 12th century, you'd want to place your daughter well. You'd want to place her in a good monastery with somebody from another noble family to train her. So that was the case with, with Hildegard. So she was given to Juta, and they basically were walled up in the back of this church in a hermitage. And so they were living a life of, it was Hildegard, another young woman, and Juta, and Juta was their spiritual mother. So this is contrasted by, say, a Benedictine monastery or a Cistercian monastery. They live in a communal setting where there are communal meals and people work together and they pray together in a church. So whereas these sisters didn't have a larger community to plug into, they were really on their own. This changed within a very few years because they became famous for being very holy. So eventually a convent grew up right there alongside the male monastery in Disembottenburg. No one at this time becomes a nun because they feel drawn to it. It's mm. not like, that is the life for me. They are sent there as a child. They have no choice. Wow. Usually if, if you're maybe the fifth or sixth or, in the case of Hildegard von Bingen, the tenth child, oh. your parents have enough kids to, to you know, inherit the business or to run the family farm, and they have a, they have a bonus kid. So mm -hmm. they give it to the church as tithing. Wow. And that child's job is to pray for the family for their whole entire life. 
Wow. So they're kind of contributing to the family welfare in that way. You know, they are, their job is to take care of the spiritual life of the family by praying for them all day, every day. Wow. So let me tell you about the daily life of a nun. Okay. And, and you tell me if, if you feel like that's your groove, like you could live that kind of life. Okay. You'd pray seven times a day, and this is based on Psalm 119, and it becomes enshrined in a very famous book of, of rules for how to live as a monk called the Rule of St. Benedict, written by Benedict of Nursia in the 6th century. They'd come together in the church, and they would sing in Latin the divine office, which would include psalms and hymns and would have some readings from scripture. And this you would do every day, every day for the rest of your life, really, that would be this praying seven times a day. And in between these times of prayer, you would eat. You would have a time for private study called Lexio Divina, where you would contemplate the scripture by reading a passage or a chapter in the Bible over and over again, like a cow chewing its cud. And this would be time of silent prayer, meditation, reflection. And this would be done every day as well, Lexio Divina. So yeah, really work, prayer, and meal times, communal meal times. Uh, meal times in a Benedictine monastery were silent. And um, you would have a reader and they would read while the monks ate there was a rudimentary sign language that actually developed. There would have been rudimentary signs for fish and salt and these sorts of things, if, if salt if they had it. The idea was that the world around you should be quiet so you could contemplate God because the ultimate goal of the monk is to, the monk or nun, is to contemplate God and seek God. And you do that best quietly. Okay, so you have this daily routine. You never deviate from it. This will be your life day in and day out. And you get up and you pray in the middle of the night for mm. two and a half hours. It's not like you pray at convenient times. Yeah. So you never, ever get a full night's sleep. Uh, you're never quite feeling well rested. And that's kind of the point. You know, you don't want to live a cushy, comfortable life. Yeah. You want to always be a little bit uncomfortable because it's kind of a form of it's a form of physical and emotional fasting. Mm. You know, you never eat till you're full. Mm. You just eat till you have enough. You're not you. You don't eat meat. Mm -hmm. You have no personal possessions whatsoever. You literally own no property. Mm. Does that feel like the life for you? No. Oh. I already I already knew that before you gave me the list, though. As soon as you said you do this routine every day for seven days a week, oh. my answer was no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> me too. I hate routine. I yeah. know some people who thrive on it and love it. I can't yeah. handle it. I I um, <laughs> do really well with it, and I hate it. <laughs> when, I, when my life is structured like that, I'm super productive and miserable. Oh, interesting. So I bet if you were a nun back then, you would hate it, but it would feel like spiritual work and you'd be like, I am going to strive yeah. to love this routine because I thrive when I live by it. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, that's funny because um, 
because I don't know if you even know this about me. I don't think anyone in the family knows this about me. Oh, big reveal. Yeah, I when I was about eight or nine years old, uh, I decided that I wanted to be a nun. Uh, <laughs> we would, you know, we would visit. Wait, this, what? I, <laughs> we would visit this monastery a lot when, when I was little. Do you remember? We would go and visit this monastery. Yeah. And it was so cool. I loved it so much. Like, I loved just the routine of it. And they made this great flavored honey that was awesome. And Right. Yeah. I, they were beekeepers. Yeah. And they had all this honey and then, like, fresh baked bread that they would sell people. Yeah. And it was so yeah. good. But I just, something about that place spoke to me. And every time we went there, I felt sort of elevated and... Mm and inspired and I just felt like this is what I want this is the kind of life that I want this is how you be a good person and I decided Mm. okay I'm gonna be a nun this will be great (laughs) and then I finally told someone I can't remember who someone not in our family and they very gently broke the news to me that I couldn't be a nun because I wasn't Catholic (laughs) and it devastated me it utterly devastated me I came home and just sobbed I sobbed for hours I cried myself to sleep because it was an insoluble problem like I'm not Catholic so I can't be a nun and everything that I want is impossible (laughs) that is so sad and like I mean you know if if somebody had just said you could convert to Catholicism yeah, like, and become a nun. Yeah, no, that just, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't anywhere in my realm of possibility. Like, you're Catholic or you're not. You just can't do yeah. it. And also, you probably right. had to know a lot of Catholic stuff to be a nun. And I oh, right. didn't know it. And so, like, my secret ambition was completely squashed and I had to give it up. Oh, how tragic. But I definitely <laughs> did not want to be a cloistered style nun. I wanted to be Right. Um I wanted to be Sister Act. Oh. <laughs> working with the poor and Right. Uh, and you have an angelic singing voice, of course. Yeah, probably that too. But like I just I loved the idea of passionately devoting your life to one thing. <laughs> um well that's interesting because um Professor Chapman also feels a real affinity for nuns, mm. and she's not particularly religious, but she loves studying monasticism mm. and the religious life, and she also felt drawn to it in her youth. Mm. I actually thought about it for quite some time. She was such an attractive figure in my informative in my own early life discovering the world of the 12th century, I was very drawn to the Benedictine way of life. You know, this idea of, you know, almost a kind of pure devotion of one's life. It, it is extremely, for many people, I think it's extremely attractive. So why didn't she become a nun then? Good question. I think today women are allowed to become intellectual thinkers in their own right and hold positions in the world as university professors. That just wasn't the case for Hildegard. Women were not educated, and the only way you could get an education was to be a nun. Today, I can live out what I think I might have as my calling, not in a convent, but in a university setting. So Hildegard became a nun at age eight, which was about 
the same time that you felt yeah. called to be a nun. So that's interesting. Yeah. And from and from a very young age, like maybe right off the bat, she had these visions. Hmm. Have you ever had a dream that felt so real that you swear it was more than a dream? Yes. Did any of them like tell you to do something? Um, I can't remember if I've had any like action items mm. in my dream. Yeah. What if you had a dream that felt like that, one of those really, really real ones, and it said something like, you must move to Alaska? Uh, yeah, I would do that. You would? Yeah. Wow. But. Cool. But, strong disclaimer. <laughs> okay. Only if it, like, didn't violate my already established moral code, right? Like, okay, yeah. If it says, go kill, no, no. If it's something within your normal moral universe. Yeah. You would do it? Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. What if in your dream you heard a voice that said, I am God and you are my messenger. Share what you hear from me oh. with the world. Um. And the voice gets louder and it comes back every night and it says, you're not doing it. You're not sharing my messages. I would probably go and see a mental health provider. <laughs> Me really. too. Yeah, really. Yeah. Like anything, I think anything that that was telling me that I was super important, I'm very suspicious of. That's exactly my reaction. I think I would I would go to every psychiatrist. I would talk to every neuroscientist. Yeah. I would I would try every medical path yeah. before I believed that that voice was really telling me that I'm a special messenger. Yeah. So Hildegard of Bingen heard and saw visions. Mm. She received messages. But her reaction to them was pretty much the same as what our reaction would have been. Mm. From my earliest childhood, God revealed himself to me in many ways. Sometimes in words, sometimes in images, sometimes in music, sometimes in all three. I looked and I listened. I saw and I heard, but I kept silent. So yeah, well, Hildegard had visions from the time she was about three years old. By five years old, she was kind of under, able to understand them. But she didn't really talk to anybody about them because, as you can imagine, it wouldn't be good to be telling people that you're having these visions. Why? Because one has to ask, if you have a vision, by whom is it inspired? It could be God, but it could also be the devil. So they were often very suspect, these visions. So this one vision that she had in 41 basically Write what you see and hear is the command that she heard. And so she felt like after that she had to follow God's will and write what she saw and heard. And it was then that she told Judah about some of these visions. And it wasn't uh, long after that that Judah told uh, a confessor, monk Volmar. The next step after that would be to get sanctioned by the church so that the church would give its approval for these visions to be written down. And so she wrote to a very famous churchman of the 12th century called Bernard of Clairvaux, who was at a synod in Trier um, with the Pope, Pope Eugenius III. 
and the Pope Eugenius III had been Bernard's novice. And so the idea here is that if you could get the ear of the master, that maybe he could convince the Pope that your visions were acceptable. And in fact, that's what happened. She began writing after that and developed into three visionary books that made her world renowned and her convent the source of great notoriety all around Europe. Wow. She recorded them and we have those books. They survive now. Mm. She she would see a vision. Uh, she would experience it visually and then she would describe the image that she saw and they would write that down. And then at some point, perhaps somebody in the monastery or something created visual images to go with them. Hmm. So they were trying to artistically recreate the vision that she saw. So it's pretty cool. I mean, it's a really spectacular book of not just medieval literature, but also art. Wow. So these are holy visions. They can be visions about um, creation. They can be visions about how the church is organized. They can be visions about a kind of connection between God and humanity, and they are absolutely spectacular. These visions are are colorful, they are expressive, and there are many, many of these. And you can go in and look at her works. Her most famous one is called the Skivios, which basically means know the ways of the Lord. So these visions, surprisingly, as far as we know, don't happen at night, so they're not dreams. They're visions that strike her in the middle of the day when she's wide awake. In her life, they become a kind of pivotal moment. So write what you hear and see. Well, if she doesn't write what she hears and sees, God strikes her or or makes her sick. Another time, she has visions that she should leave this monastery in Dissenbottenberg and found her own religious house of nuns, take her nuns with her and go to Rupertsburg. And when she doesn't get permission from her abbot, she doesn't move her nuns, and she's struck with a sickness. And so it's this idea that these visions are, are both absolutely real, vivid, colorful, and absolutely, in her experience, true and significant. And if she doesn't listen to them, that, that there will be consequences for her. And the consequence might be her life, or certainly her health. So this is a a vision that is um, from part two of the Skivios. And it is vision five, and it's sometimes referred to as the three orders of the church. So this image is a representation, really, of the symbolic groups that she sees in the church. One group is represented with the color white, and this is kind of symbolic for the priesthood. The color purple is represented uh, as the monastic community of both men and women. And a blue uh, represents the laity or the people. And yeah, it's very cool. So actually one of the things I do with my students is I read them the text and I have them draw out what they think the text is saying and then I have them compare it to the actual picture itself. And it's a really fun activity. Let's do it. Okay, so here is the text. 
After this I saw that a splendor white as snow and translucent as crystal had shone around the image of a woman from, top, from the top of her head to her throat, and that from her throat to her navel another splendor, red in color, had encircled her, glowing like the dawn from, from her throat to her breasts, and shining from her breasts to her navel were mixed with purple and blue. And where it glowed like the dawn, its brightness shone forth as high as the secret places of heaven. And in this brightness appeared the most beautiful image of a maiden, with bare head and black hair, wearing a red tunic which flowed down to her feet. So I'll post this image on our uh, website and on our account so that people can see how the... Uh, artist in the monastery interpreted her words. Oh, cool. Yeah, so if we read through the text and looked at it a little bit more closely, we can certainly see that there is a, a figure of a large woman standing there. That is the church holding together all of these different orders within the church with these gold wings here, you know, representing uh, the divine and representing protection. So it's really interesting. Yeah, so the question is, what in the world was going on with Hildegard with these visions? Were they real visions from God or not? It's been suggested that it's possible that these um, visions were the result of intense migraines. There are aspects of, of these visions that look very similar to kind of the, the that sort of horizon of a migraine coming on. People, people who describe that process are wide awake. They aren't sleeping. These are not dreams. I mean, I don't know. I've never had a migraine, but I mean, I suppose it's possible. But then if you're religious, you might say, yeah, it's possible it's a migraine and God works through migraines. So therefore, it's not necessarily true that if it's migraines, that it negates the holiness of a vision. It just depends on whether you accept these visions are from God or not. Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor, the Girls Can Crate. A unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that girls can do and be anything. The Girls Can Crate is a monthly subscription box changing the way we think about toys. Every crate features an inspiring woman and her own unique story of why she's awesome. For What's Her Name podcast listeners, we have a special discount code for you. You'll get 20% off your first month's crate, any subscription that you order girlscancrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com, and enter the coupon code HERNAME, all caps. I have heard it said that the body is at war with the soul. But how can this be? He made us as whole beings, and our souls can only find expression through the actions of our bodies. Indeed, I am persuaded that when body and soul act together in mutual agreement, they receive the highest reward of mutual joy. Yeah, so she's a very interesting person. She wrote um, books which became absolutely critical to the way in which medicine was practiced. She wrote um, Causes and Cures and the Physica, both really very important texts. The Causes and Cures is just what it says. Basically, here's the problem, here's the cause, and here's the cure. So it was a kind of uh, 
treatment book. And in recent days, they've looked at some of the treatments that she did for migraines, for example, and they are amazingly effective. She would have lived in a time in which people would have believed in what's called Galenic medicine. So Galen had this idea of the four humors. And the idea was that you had to keep these four humors of the body in balance. Now, we know today that the four humors was just not true. But the idea of keeping the body in balance, the homeostasis, that certainly is a medical concept. That's not only true, but it's, is is talked about by doctors all the time today. The interesting thing about these medical texts is that there's not a lot of theology in them. So even though her visions are all about God and theology, her medical texts are very much medical. And so in, a, in an age when uh, sickness was, physical sickness was oftentimes seen as what you needed to do to get physically well was to make yourself right spiritually, she said, no, we have brains and we have reason. And we must use this reason to heal these medical problems of the body. Now, at the same time, you have to pray and make sure your soul is, is cleansed. You must also have music. So she practiced music therapy. So her, she would have treated patients in a holistic way. She also was a composer. Yeah. And she wrote lots of beautiful chant and she wrote it all for her sisters in her monastery for them to sing their prayers you know it wasn't like she was composing music and then saying hey world here's this music it was just entirely for her and her sisters to pray her music is very different from a lot of other chant because um she she makes a lot of leaps in the melody she'll leap to the fourth or the fifth note of the scale which wasn't a thing that you did in chant at the time. She called herself the feather on the breath of God. Wow. And I think you can hear that in the music. You can imagine a feather, you know, being shot up into the sky by a gust of air and then slowly coming back down. of this, all these aspects of her life kind of came together into a kind of holistic perspective of life and the individual. You know, if you don't feel well, then she's going to study your body. She's going to use medicine. She's going to use music to cure you. She's going Mm. to do whatever it, it takes to soothe your soul and your body all together. So there wasn't a word for it back then. We call it holistic today, but she just would have said, you know, I'm just treating the person. There are lots of ways that a person is affected and we need to get to the roots of all of those causes, not just one. Yeah. And that's really what got her in trouble in the end. Oh no. She, she treated Anybody who was suffering, anybody who came 
past her convent and she treated everyone, um, even people that the church told her not to. Uh Uh-oh. But in the last year of my life, the music was silenced. It was a time of great grief and heavy sadness. You see, we had buried in the grounds of our convent a young man who had been excommunicated as a revolutionary, and we would not yield up his body. But he'd confessed before he died, and his body was entitled to rest in hallowed ground. I, though I was old and ill, went out and removed all traces of the grave so that it could not be violated. For I fear the justice of God more than the justice of men. The bishop did not agree with me. He placed us under the interdict so we could no longer sing the office or receive communion. After eight months, I wrote him a letter about the theology of music and reminding him that those who silence the music of God on earth will have no part of the song of the angels in heaven. The interdict was lifted and the music goes on. easy to frame Hildegard of Bingen as this this icon of girl power or you know she's a proto-feminist she's actually she's never breaking the rules like that yeah so when we look at at Hildegard certainly she has she does act within the parameters of the 12th century she doesn't try to buck the system she also writes things like this from the second book of the Scivias about women she says so too those of female sex should not approach the office of my altar, for they are infirm, a weak habitation, anointed only to bear children and diligently nurture them. A woman conceives a child, not by herself, but through a man, and as the ground is plowed, not by itself, but by a farmer. So you can see there here, she really does not claim a sort of feminist um, approach here. She is living and working within the context of her time. I would say in the way that she might be considered a feminist, if you could use that word, is that she listened to God. She was first and foremost dedicated to God. And whether, no matter what that meant, she was going to serve God. And if it meant going along with the church, she did it. If it meant going up against the church, she did it. She died at Rupertsburg on September 17th, 1179, and was buried there by her sisters. Her bones aren't in the churchyard. Her bones are in a reliquary now. They're in a very fancy kind of golden box on display for people to go and visit because now she's Saint Hildegard of Bingen and right. hundreds of pilgrims every year go and walk her path, um, mm. traveling all the sites she lived in Germany along the Rhine. And it's this beautiful location, first off, the Rhine Valley. Still now? Still now, now today. Yeah. Wow. 
so her convent or, you know, monastery, the remains of it are still there. You can actually go and see it. But the second foundation that she made, in addition to Rupertsburg, was uh, Ibingen. And there is a fully-fledged functioning community in Ibingen still. The buildings are not 12th century or original, but there's a, a religious community of nuns still there today. Yeah, I want to do it. Yeah, um, especially because all the locations are so beautiful. I think it's it's something that people do for religious reasons, but mm-hmm. um, I just love that people like Professor Chapman also do it for intellectual reasons. And yeah, you know, she's doing it to honor the history of this this woman that she so admires. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm I'm hopefully going to go this summer. So I'm going to go and kind of walk her path. So I'm going to go to Disenbottenberg and then I'm going to take a trip to uh, Bingen and then out to her monastery foundation there in uh, Rupertsburg and then go to Ibingen as the end of the trek. Almost kind of like what, what a pilgrimage. These were very famous in the 12th century. That is going on retracing the steps of a holy person. So I'm going to do that. What would I take to leave on her grave? Um, I might just take a note that says thank you. But the words and the songs that I uttered came not from any human source. God moves where he wills, and not at the will of any earthly creature. And I am ever in fear and trembling, and I ever doubt my own capacities. But I lift my hands to God, that I may be carried as a feather is carried, without power or strength of its own, on the breath of the wind. I died in the year 1179, but I do not think that death has silenced me. Some of you today may hear my voice. I was 81 years old when I had died. So I had kept silent for half my life, and I had spoken out for half my life. Perhaps that is the right balance taking in, receiving, and giving out, in and out, like breathing, like the breath of God. If you'd like to learn more about Hildegard of Bingen's life, works, and music, we have books and audio recordings on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Special thanks to Alice Chapman and June Boyce Tillman and the St. Paul's Institute. The music of Hildegard of Bingen was recorded by June Boyce Tillman and Solis Camerata, directed by Kira Zeman-Rugen. Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith, and this episode was produced by Katie Nelson and Olivia Mickle. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of images each week. And if you want to help make more podcasts happen, you can always click Donate on our website. Thank you.